0: I look forward to your questions. I know from experience, they're usually good ones. So,
1: Thank you for your <coughs> presentation, Harold. It was uh, informative and it was interesting. Uh, you, the title was that you get what you vote for. After your speech, it seems like we have to change the system before we get what we vote for. Absolutely. Now, seeing that we have so many minority governments in the last 50 years, how many coalition governments uh, did they form?
0: Uh, in the last 50 years, zero. Yeah, okay.
1: You're missing out on the best of both worlds. <laughs>
0: exactly.
2: Hi, I'm Henning Mundel. The question that your presentation, your topic in itself, leads us to is how do we go about this? The governments in power are not interested in doing it.
0: Okay, that's, somebody asked me that at our table, too, and I said that really is the million-dollar question about electoral reform is how do you get there? Um, you're right. I mean, there's sort of the uh, there's the problem that governments have to make these changes, but the people in government are there by virtue of benefiting from the existing system. So it's tough to see them change it. Uh, Nick Lunin, who wrote a book on electoral reform in British Columbia, has a chapter in his book that's always stuck with me. It's called "Would Turkeys Vote for an Early Thanksgiving?" And that's kind of what you're asking them to do. I thought that line's kind of memorable to me. Um, but the fact is, it does happen, and it has happened in some places. And uh, so, for example, uh, British Columbia, we have seen the second referendum on electoral reform. Uh, Ontario held one unsuccessfully. Uh, New Brunswick had a study. Prince Edward Island had. So there has been a lot of movement in the last 10 years, more than I ever thought I'd see. Uh, Quebec did studies. Well, that's right. Thank you, uh, Gordon. Um, Countries have switched, New Zealand being the best case. Basically what has to happen is usually what we need to see is anomalous results, where the system doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And one of the big ones that happens that can trigger electoral reform is what we call a wrong winner election. And that's where the party that finishes second in the popular vote ends up forming the government. Uh, So we saw this in British Columbia in 1996. The NDP had less support than the Liberals, but the NDP actually uh, still formed the government. We saw it in Quebec in 1998. More people voted for the Liberals than the Parti Québécois, but the PQ had more seats. And we saw it in New Brunswick in 2006. Ironically, actually, Bernard Lord had commissioned a study on the electoral system that recommended switching to MNP. He dragged his feet on it because he was benefiting from it, and then he lost on a wrong-winner election to the Liberals, which I thought was wonderfully ironic. Um, so it can happen. And in New Zealand, it happened two elections in a row. Um, So that is something that seems to trigger interest. Now, we haven't had that federally yet, so that's, I'd argue, one of the things that we need to see is is we need to see that to happen. The other thing that has to happen, I think, is that people have to make the connection between what they don't like that government's doing with the electoral system, and that's another lesson from New Zealand. Um, Many of you may know this, that a lot of the Ralph Klein cutbacks in the 1990s were modeled after the New Zealand government, Which had done that in the 1980s. But what happened is those New Zealand governments that had done that had been elected by wrong winners, and the opposition parties kept hammering it into them that, uh, hammering into voters that, look, they're not even legitimate, right? They, they were the second choice and they still are doing all this stuff. And, uh, so the Labor Party continued to, uh, to do that. Ultimately, I think though it requires, it requires citizen education and initiative. Uh, that 's the, the sad part about it is that a lot of it 's tough to get people motivated or interested in learning about the alternatives. People are quite content with what they have and aren 't particularly well informed what other countries are doing, and that there are better ways out there. I think we sort of there 's an institutional inertia that 's very difficult to break so a lot does depend on citizens, but I think political parties need to take a lead in this and so during the last uh, federal election, the leaders debate. Uh, one of the questions in the English debate was, what's the first thing you would do as prime minister? And it was very interesting, Elizabeth May's answer, who you would expect it would be something on climate change, but no, her first thing was bring in proportional representation. And par- parties pushing that, I think, is also an important part of that. I think there's an important role for citizen activism, but you need parties to really run with this and make it a priority. Not, But it's not an easy thing. Like, I'm, I, I share your concern, and uh, I am open to suggestions and ideas. Thanks for the great question.
2: Hello. My name is Isaac Mohanan. Hi, At our table, we're talking about the various benefits and uh, disadvantages. Uh PR has obvious disadvantages. Small parties, lifespan of a government is short as a mayfly, especially places like Italy, et cetera. What does MMP have those same weaknesses, or do they have a whole new set of problems that need to be dealt with?
0: Okay. Uh, Really good question. MMP, pretty much, it it depends on the balance between how many list seats you have and how many single member seats you have. But most of them basically function the same as a PR system. But I think the mistake that we make is, is equating shorter government lifespan with being less effective. And the reality is that, like I said, the studies show there's no evidence that overall, on balance, they're less effective. There are some countries that struggle with being effective with a PR system. So we think of Italy and Israel, for example. But most countries that use PR, the vast majority of them work very, very well. The one thing that MMP that some people criticize it for that you don't have with, say, a straight list system or proportional representation is the argument that that creates two classes of members of parliament. So you have those ones that won their election fighting in single-member districts, and you have those people who uh, won on the list, and so there's an argument that they're somehow less representative or less worthy as for being members of parliament. Um, there is a bit of evidence to support that there is that feeling, especially in countries that have newly adopted MMP system, but if we look at a place like Germany where it's been running for years, uh, Louis Massacott at uh, the University of Montreal did a very intensive study of this, and he actually found that there's not much evidence that the rules are different or that voters perceive them. So over time, that criticism goes away. So that is one of the criticisms that MMP is subject to that the PR system isn't. So yes, we do end up with shorter governments, but again, I would argue that's not necessarily means they're less effective. And again, I'd point out, in Canada, we've had, what, three elections in the last four and a half years? Um Italy's not doing that badly, right? We complain, like, we're doing worse than most countries with PR, so I'd argue we already have that problem without all the other advantages the PR system would bring. That's uh, another excellent question.
1: Hi there, Rebecca Edwards. I'm a student at the university. Thank you very much for your talk. I very much enjoyed it. Uh, One thing that did come up at our table was the issue of low voter turnout. Um, It's separated, obviously, by age and by religion, by education. Do you think that would improve with proportional representation, or is there something else at play there? that's resulting in low voter
0: turnout? Oh, that's a, that's a huge question. There's, um, there's a whole talk on voter turnout, actually. Um, voter turnout is driven by a whole bunch of things, and you're right, age is, seems to be a big factor. One of the things that we're finding in the studies is that most of the decline in voter turnout is actually driven by younger voters not voting. And there are exceptions. I just saw a study this week about the American election, and actually voter turnout dropped in all the age groups except 18- to 24-year-olds, Obama, seem to have a mobilizing effect. But overall, if you look at the decline in voting, it's people under 30 who are voting in, in lower numbers. So it seems to be driven by more by a, a generational change, change in cultural values, and the electoral system isn't going to affect that. The fact is voter turnout is dropping in countries with PR as well. But the reality is if we look at the comparative evidence, there is evidence that countries with proportional representation have, they're dropping from a higher level, so they're higher than us still. Uh, would it reverse it? Not completely. No. Um, it might have some effect. We're not talking a huge effect, so I don't think we want to overstate the extent. It might make a few percentage points difference, but take what we can get, frankly. But uh, yeah, so it, there's a bunch of things. I think it's it's dangerous to say it's just the electoral system. I think it's a small contributing factor to a much larger problem. Thanks, Rebecca.
3: My name is James Moore. I just want to follow up on the last two questions with another one. And I want to bring uh, the focus to the provincial election in Alberta rather than the federal. And when we're speaking about voter turnout, for example, I would like your comments on these issues. Um, When you don't put polling booths on reserves, when you don't put polling booths on university campuses, when you don't put polling booths in the work, work camps... You're obviously preventing people from voting. Um, when you uh, don't do an enumeration of the voters, when you uh, crash the electoral website on election day, when you uh, make every returning officer in the province. Uh, created from the Conservative Constituency Association, embedded by the Conservative Cabinet, and you don't appoint them in some cases till the last moment. And then when you have all of the things which I've stated, presented to you by the Chief Electoral Officer, in the interests of increasing voter turnout, and you fire that man, how are we going to look at realistically increasing voter turnout? Now, is this just... Incompetence or do you think it's deliberate
0: yeah. well, this is uh, you know a little off the um, I don't think anybody could argue the last provincial election was well run from an administrative point of view. there's no question um, was it deliberate i I'm not in a position to answer that I don't know. Um, the thing that I think we need to bear in mind, and this is this may be quite sobering, and it certainly was for me when i Saw this presented. Um, A couple of my colleagues at the University of Calgary, David Stewart and Anthony Sayers, actually did a survey of voters and non-voters during the last election. The assumption that I think a lot of us had was that non-voters were people who didn't like the Conservatives and were not showing up because they were frustrated or disillusioned. In fact, what they found actually is that the non-voters were closer to the Conservatives on almost every single score. And had they had voter turnout been higher. It would have just helped the conservatives. It wouldn't have hurt them. That's what they found in their research, which was quite sobering um, and quite quite interesting. i I found so. If that's true, then I'd argue the conservatives really had no real incentive to keep voters away. I think those. I, I think they likely would have uh, it likely would have helped them as much as harmed them. So. I would. I'd probably err on the incompetent side rather than the deliberate plot. Not that that's particularly comforting. But um, if you're happier with an incompetent rather than a corrupt government, then you feel feel reassured. But
1: uh. interesting conversation. And I've worked with a lot of elections, and I can tell you the last one I was working on, it was incompetence. Oh, I I agree. No question at all. Right from the
0: top down. Yeah, absolutely. Uh,
1: Very very poorly managed at at the very beginning, and didn't give much chance to the people on the. Uh, polls in the end absolutely um i come from a different perspective than i guess many do here and, and working on a lot of elections and being elected but um it seems to me that what we want is we want a democratic system that says that person sitting representing us has the majority support and he was democratically elected mm-hmm. so it seemed to me the natural system to that would be a runoff you've got eight people running the two of the highest votes have a runoff a week or two later and whoever has more than 50% of the vote represents you and can legitimately say, I have the majority of support from my riding. And, but there's another key to that. One of the biggest problems with elections today is people don't understand the system. This is easily understood. If you went on the street today and asked people on the street, who is your MP and who is your MLA and what parties you represent, you'd get a shock at how many people couldn't answer the question. So why don't we look at a system like that that is so simple to use and it could be run off quickly and easily.
0: Okay, that's, that's, uh, that's, a really, uh, that's another very good question. Um, for the, Those are called majoritarian systems, and you're right about the number of people who don't know who their MP is. We tend to p- place a lot of stock in having that local representative representing a constituency, but polls back up exactly what you're saying, is that a lot of people don't know who their MP or MLA is. They have no idea, let alone what party they're from or what they stand for or anything. Um, The majoritarian systems, I I agree, would be an improvement over what we have. Um, They have certain disadvantages. Now, the runoff is one option, right? which is essentially what the French do. They allow anybody who has at least 12.5% of the total vote not voter turnout, but uh, not just of the people who turned out, but of the total number of eligible voters get to go to the second round. Uh, the other option would be what the Australians use, which is the alternative vote where you rank the candidates and then drop the lowest. It achieves the same result. The, the uh, alternative vote is more complex. The runoff system requires two rounds of voting. And so the concern is, well, what's that going to do? It's hard enough to get people to turn out to vote once, and you get them to come out a week later, or they won't vote for the first one; will only vote for the second one. Um, what I my problem with it is that it still leads to those kinds of distortions. It's in many ways, in terms of the system properties, it still produces manufactured majorities. It still produces um, it still produces the regional distortions. The conservatives would still end up dominating Alberta. The liberals would still end up dominating Ontario. And in fact, a lot of the research shows that. Uh, The party that would probably benefit, I'm actually surprised the liberals have never done this, as I think the liberals would be in really good shape if they ever did this. If I were Ignatieff, this is what I'd propose, because it would look like you're reforming things. Uh, You're right, it's simple to understand, and I think they would stand to benefit quite substantially from it. Um, But to me, it doesn't deal with a lot of those those issues. I think those regional distortions that we see um, would still happen... And uh, I think it would still lead to a lot of distortion at the national level. If we compare countries like an Australia and France, how they perform, versus countries like New Zealand or Germany that use uh, PR systems, they don't as accurately reflect what's going on. But I do agree, I absolutely agree that would be a, a significant improvement over what we've got.
4: Uh, I just, uh, my wife and I get a letter ever so often from the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. Mm-hmm. And they are very concerned that we'll be losing more and more of our freedom. Okay. And uh, I think one of the reasons probably is because the social structure in Canada is going this way. You take, for instance, if you read the Calgary Sun, I read it every day. And uh, it says more and more policemen, more and more policemen more and more laws, more laws to control crime. What is the answer besides forever putting more laws and controlling people by laws? What is the answer?
0: Well, with I'm going to tie it back to electoral systems because that's my area of expertise. I'm not a sociologist. or a, um, What we find with different electoral systems is that um, law and order things like that, uh, political violence, strikes, all those kinds of things, crime rates. There's no difference between countries with proportional systems, countries with uh, uh, majoritarian governments. So I'd argue the choice of electoral system is really pretty neutral when it comes to how we're governed, and that's always been the argument that somehow certain systems are prone to govern in a particular way. But there's no real evidence that, that that makes much that the kind of electoral system will have much impact on that, so I think we can look at other sorts of values that we are looking to to, uh, to improve the quality of representation, and I think it would be fairly neutral with respect to the kinds of things you 're concerned about would be my answer
4: I might just make a suggestion uh, in history, for instance, in England, when they had a spiritual revival in England. Crime increased, decreased, and everything decreased. And according to history, if England hadn't gone through a spiritual revival, she would have went through a revolution like France did. That's what history says. Do you think that might be true?
0: I'm not a historian, so (laughs) I, uh, I, I don't know.
3: Susan Giffen and taking it back to um, sure. the electoral reform, where would the Senate fall or would the Senate then fall okay. if we had this proportional representation?
0: Um, I'm looking at one sort of, uh, this came up at our table as well, about where this would rank in, uh, with respect to reforming the Senate. I think a lot of what we're trying to do in the Senate is trying to fix problems that are created by our House of Commons. So one of the major uh, impetus is behind uh, reforming the Senate is to try to encourage that regions get represented. So we think back to uh, everybody in Alberta's favorite whipping boy, the National Energy Program, um, right, and the argument is, well, there's no, there's no liberals from Alberta, so the federal uh, government can just do what it wants. If we had a Tripoli e Senate where Albertans were represented, then they could have done something, right, somehow that might have prevented or made that more difficult to do. But I argue if we look at the problem, well, the problem is already that for the liberals when they're making that calculation, you just write off parts of the country, right? You're not winning seats in Alberta, so who cares what you do to them, right? You can do what you want. And we saw this with the conservatives this fall and the whole fallout so over the coalition. Stephen Harper's strategy was basically a scorched earth strategy in Quebec, right? They're a bunch of separatists, evil people trying to destroy the country, and we've seen his poll numbers in Quebec just die as a result and he can do that because he realizes okay the road to winning for me is in ontario it's not in quebec and if i can get ontario votes then it doesn't matter so my argument is is if we reform the system so that parties are represented fairly equitably at the regional level then the liberals would have seats in alberta and if you drop 20% of the vote in uh, in alberta you lose Five six seats—that's significant. You feel that if the liberals drop twenty well, percent, at I would put them like minus eight or something, which is mathematically possible. But um, but even if they drop ten percent of the vote, dropped down to two, um, right now, well, they're already not winning seats. So what? But if that cost you in seats, that's going to change how you uh, how you do things. So I think my argument is that a lot of what we're trying to fix in the Senate really stem from representational problems at the level of the House of Commons, and. Um, and so I think that, so I'd argue, it'd be nice to fix both, but if I had to choose one, I would be more concerned about the House of Commons. Hope that answers your question. Thanks, that's a good one.
2: Hi, um, my name is Lisa Lambert, and Harold was my master's supervisor, so I'm going to ask him the questions that he's asked me over and over. I <laughs> <laughs> well, um, shoes on the other foot, I guess. Okay. <laughs> I'm remembering back to the defense. So um, one of the questions that, we've thought about, and I wanted to have your uh, public opinion on, is that the campaign finance reforms of 2003 um, essentially gave money to parties based on a proportional system, on a per-vote basis, the $1.75 per vote, as we've heard about. Um, Do you think that that will have some sort of pressure uh, because the Green Party, particularly, is now a party that receives more than a million dollars a year in public financing but does not have an elected member. In many systems with PR, they would have elected members. They're well over the threshold for almost every other country. Do you think that that will then provide a bit of an impetus towards um, a proportional, a more proportional electoral system?
0: Okay, that's a, that's a really good question. I'd argue it sort of happens in two stages. I'd argue the the need for and the pressure for a switch to some different electoral system is driven by the fact that we don't have the nice, tidy two-party system that we're supposed to have, like the American system with Democrats and Republicans uh, alternating in power, that we have a multi-party system that's much more similar to a European-style PR country, multi-party system with coalition governments. What the uh, electoral form system does is it helps to sustain those smaller parties and gives them a longer life. So the Green Party isn't going to go away. I mean, they might drop a few percentage of the votes, but they're able to maintain a presence by virtue of having this vote. The Bloc Québécois, on top of being sustained by the electoral system, is essentially almost entirely funded by your tax money. They almost don't have to raise any money, so it keeps the multi-party system alive. And I'd argue that sort of creates the conditions to get the anomalous results. It creates the kind of party system that fits much more with the PR system and the fact that the Green Party continues to push electoral reform um, and is essentially funded to do so by your and my tax money, um, I think that does contribute. Now, as far as it being sort of a precedent, now we have some sort of per-vote funding. I don't sort of get the sense that people are making that connection, that we have this policy approach when it comes to campaign finance, so therefore, we should also apply that to the level of the electoral system. I don't get the sense that people are making that connection, but I think it does keep the, the multi-party system alive and sustains those smaller parties that create the incentive to switch it. So, yeah, I'd argue it's sort of an indirect effect, but it is there. Thank you.
4: My name is Knut Peterson. Uh, Harold, thanks for coming.
0: You're
4: I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit about our present government, uh, minority government. Uh, how it's working out, and uh, if you think it's going to last very long.
0: Okay, well, I'll tie it to the uh, to the electoral system side, first of all. Um, I think, in a sense, if we look at what Canada has done over the last, although there have been lots of elections and things, to me it shows sort of some of the advantages of having not having single-party majorities. It's because governments can't just do then what they want, they have to pay attention to what other parties and what other Canadians want. I think it forces parties to hew towards the center, to to govern in a fairly centrist way. And I think, to me, what's striking about the uh, Harper Conservatives since 2006 is it's not a huge change from what we saw under Martin in the previous year and a half. A lot of people have argued there was all this talk about Stephen Harper having a hidden agenda, and the hidden agenda is that he is actually really a liberal, right? As that seems to be the hidden agenda that he has and i think the minority governments do that so i think to me that that is a um reassuring kind of thing if we were to look at a switch to electoral systems that canadians do have this tradition of compromise and and making things work and having institutional incentives that force that um make that work better and as far as how long this government's going to last i give them another year or two at least i mean i think we're looking probably late 2000 can before anybody be looking at going to the polls, and I think the reason is is that the conservatives certainly don't want to fight an election while economic times are tough. One of the things we know from studies of voting behavior is when the economy is tanking, voters get very grouchy and they punish governments in power. You don't want to hold an election when you've got auto work, auto plants closing down. You just don't want to do that. And for the conservatives to have any chance at a majority, they need to actually. Um, They need to actually uh, make some inroads in Ontario, which they're not going to do. So I don't think they have an incentive. Um, And I don't think the Liberals really have much of an incentive either. Um, Ignatieff, right, they're up in the polls a little bit, slightly, a few percentage. Uh, He seems to be, the party seems to be more united. They're getting their act together. But the thing we have to remember to sort of tie this into Lisa's question a moment ago is that they're basically broke. They've got no money to fight another campaign. And uh, so they're not going to be in any real hurry to bring down the government either. That leaves the NDP and the bloc, and they will quite happily vote against the government repeatedly because Jack Layton likes to be able to point out how they're the only party that always voted against the conservatives every single time, whereas the liberals didn't. And and because the liberals are in this ambivalent position, the NDP and the bloc are fairly free to do this. Um, So, I mean, I I think it really rests in Michael Ignatius' hands. And I don't see him in a big hurry. They've got to fix what's wrong with the party, and there's a lot. They need to come up with policy for the next election, and they don't have that yet. So there's a lot of rebuilding that has to happen within the Liberal Party. So I'd argue, yeah, we're probably stuck this way for a couple of years. Actually, this is a point I should have made in response to an earlier question. Um, The interesting thing about um, frequent elections and our system is that I think actually our system, in a sense right now, is contributing to more frequent elections. For Stephen Harper, the reason he called the election in 2008, even though we had a fixed election law, right, that's supposed to make that illegal, is that he thought he could get a majority government, right? He thought, I can catch the liberals, I've got Dion, Dion's not catching fire with the electorate, the party's broke, I can get them, and I can get that majority that I so badly want. Under a PR system, he'd have no hope of getting a majority, right? And he came. Harper came that close to getting it. Um, so I think it create, takes away the incentive for more frequent elections. If you know you're always going to get a minority every single time, I think it takes one of the incentives for bringing down the uh, bringing down the government. But, uh, yeah, so lots of different ideas in the same answer. Thanks for the question.
4: Well, that just about um, finishes our time. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody for coming today and for your questions. And uh, next week, it's Senator Tommy Banks talking about the um, coalition. Thank you.
1: So thank you, everybody, for coming today.